This morning, I'd I'd like us to look at one more passage from the account of that first Easter that I think is important for us as we move from the Easter weekend into the rest of the year. And John chapter 21 is a wonderful passage for many reasons, but I think that it forms an important bridge that connects Easter to our life and mission as Jesus' disciples. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 21. And we're going to read from verse 1 through verse 25. John writes this. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who'd leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? 
Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. This is God's word. There is so much that we could look at in these verses, but I'd like to divide the sermon into two parts. I'll begin by just filling in some of the details of what took place there beside the Sea of Galilee that morning. And then I'd like us to focus in on the conversation that Jesus has with Peter. So in terms of the setting, this incident that John records for us happened some time after that first Easter. Uh, We're not exactly sure how long, John simply tells us afterwards, but we presume that, that several days, maybe even weeks, have passed since that first Sunday. And after the high of that first Easter Sunday, the disciples seem to have come down. There's a sense of restlessness and purposelessness, a sense of what now, maybe a sense of despondency, of waiting, even of frustration. And it's into this atmosphere of what do we do next that Simon Peter says, I'm going off to fish, and the others say, we'll go with you. It's almost as if the last three years haven't happened at all. They're back to where they started, out fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And so in this appearance, Jesus recommissions his disciples. Early in the morning, he stands on the beach and he calls out to them, literally in verse 5, lads, you don't have any fish, do you? To which the short, sharp, surly response is, no. Fishermen do not like to be asked whether they've caught anything, especially when they've spent the entire night not catching anything. And so Jesus then helpfully calls out to them, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Why the disciples listened to the stranger on the beach, I have no idea. Fishermen are not known for taking advice from non-fishermen, especially non-fishermen who stand on the shore 90 meters away uh, from all of the action. But for some reason, they do take his advice. And we read in verse 6 that when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And it's at that point that little light bulbs go on above the disciples' heads. You can almost see them because this exact same thing had happened to them once before, three years ago, the very first time they'd met Jesus, in fact. You can go away and read it in Luke chapter 5. Jesus preaches to the crowds who are gathered on the shore of Lake Galilee, and he uses Peter's boat as a fishing pulpit And at the end of his sermon, he asks Peter to put the boat out into deeper water and let the nets down for a catch. And Peter says, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. And so they do. And they catch such a huge amount of fish that the nets begin to break. And when Peter sees this, he falls at Jesus' feet and says, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And now here, Jesus uses this fishing expedition and this miraculous catch of fish to remind his disciples of their mission in the world. They'd forgotten it. 
They were feeling restless and disorientated. And so Jesus takes them right back to their original calling. From now on, you will catch people. Jesus recommissions his disciples. And perhaps if we've come out of this Easter season wondering to ourselves what next, we need to remind ourselves of Jesus' call to be, his, to be part of his mission in this world. And I think there are some important things to learn about our mission from Jesus' particular commissioning of Peter, which is what I want us to have a look at next. By the way, do you notice the incredible change in Peter? On that first occasion when he'd met Jesus, he'd asked Jesus to go away from him. Now he puts on his clothes uh, out of modesty before jumping into the water. And even though he's full of contradictions and feelings of guilt, he just wants to be with his friend Jesus. And of course, we know the reason for Peter's uh, contradictions and feelings of guilt because of the fact that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had said to his disciples, this very night you'll fall away on account of me. And Peter had said, even if everyone falls away on account of you, I never will. And Jesus had said, I tell you the truth, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And Peter boldly declares, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. But of course, Peter had disowned Jesus. When Jesus is arrested, Peter follows the crowd into the courtyard of the high priest, and he warms himself by the little fire that's been lit there. And three different people come to Peter and say, you were with Jesus. And three times, Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. And the rooster crows, and Jesus looks right at Peter, and Peter remembers what Jesus had said to him. And we read that he went outside and wept bitterly. And so as now, as Peter stands before Jesus, sopping wet, he must have been feeling very uncomfortable indeed. But Jesus is the master pastor. Did you notice that he recreates that little scene around a charcoal fire? Peter had denied Jesus three times around a fire. Here again, there is another fire, and three questions are asked. Peter, do you love me? I'm very sure that in the days and weeks after Peter's denial, Peter must have thought, I wish I could go back and do it again. Boy, if I could do it again, I'd do it differently. How many of us haven't felt that way in experiences in our lives? And Jesus gives Peter an opportunity to do it all over again. Just to say that that process of repentance and forgiveness doesn't necessarily, although it's gentle, uh, still hurt. Jesus asks Peter these questions in front of all of the other disciples. And in verse 17, we're told Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Peter's restoration was uncomfortable and embarrassing and hurtful. And yet that's where real healing took place. There's a very wonderful and instructive scene in one of C.S. Lewis's children's books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, part of the Narnia series. In the book, we're introduced to a very unpleasant young man called Eustace, who's come into the land of Narnia with his cousins. And as I say, he's just a, a, an unpleasant boy because of his selfishness and his pride and his greed. 
And we read that because of this, he actually turns into a dragon, which is a very uncomfortable and nasty thing to be. But fortunately, the great lion, Aslan, who represents Jesus in the books, comes and changes him. The lion leads Eustace to a large pool. And Eustace knows that if he can just get into the pool of water, he'll be made whole. But Aslan then tells Eustace that he must undress before he can get into the pool, which seems strange because he's not wearing any clothes. And then he realizes, well, he should get rid of this dragon suit. So he scratches a little bit on the surface and a few of the scales drop off. And then he realizes, well, if he cuts a little bit deeper, he can get rid of most of the skin, which he does. And there's this old skin lying on the floor. And he's about to get into the water, and then he realizes, no, but he's, he's still a dragon. And so he repeats the process. He scratches off a little bit and scratches on the surface and takes off a little layer and tries to get in, and it doesn't work. And then we read this. The lion speaks. You'll have to let me undress you. And as Eustace tells Edmund afterwards, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me be able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio but it was fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass over there, so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and as soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I'd been. And then he caught hold of me, I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. In Job chapter 5, we read these words. Blessed is the man whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. And for some of us this morning, we need to come and stand before Jesus and allow him to heal us. And it means not just scratching the surface, but giving our entire lives over to him. And sometimes the stuff that we deal with is painful and hurtful. Sometimes we have to confess it to another Christian. In fact, often we have to confess it to just one other person. And it hurts and it's embarrassing, but that's where real freedom comes. And perhaps if all of this sounds too painful for us, it would be good to remember that the hands that break the bread and the fish, the hand that is laid on Peter's shoulder, contains the nail prints of how much it hurt God to reconcile us to himself and restore us to him. But let's look at a couple of aspects of Jesus' commissioning of Peter. As we leave Easter and go into the world, Jesus calls us to these things too. Firstly, there's a call to love. Three times, Jesus asks Peter, do you truly love me more than these? Do you truly love me? Do you love me? 
And it's the fundamental question. Jesus asks it of Peter and he also asks it of us. He asks it before he asks about church attendance or worship or service. Do you love me? And I think it's important to see that the question is in the present tense. Jesus asks Peter and he asks me, do you love me? Not have you loved me? In many of our churches, there's an emphasis on the conversion experience, and we look to a particular day or day to a time where we came to know Jesus. Our focus is on that one-time conversion experience, and that's important. I made such a decision myself at the age of 13 at a WOW team rally. But we can never just focus on that once-off experience and think that we've made the decision and now we're all right. Jesus doesn't want to know whether we loved him six years ago when we walked down the aisle and committed our lives to him. He wants to know whether or not we love him today. Uh, 24 years ago now, I stood at the front of the Kimberley Baptist Church, and in front of a great number of people, I told Michelle that I loved her. And I promised that I would love her for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, until death us do part. But imagine that this evening we're sat at home and Michelle says to me, you know, you never tell me that you love me. And if I were to turn to her and say, well, 24 years ago I stood in front of the church and said I loved you. If anything changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> that would not be a good thing to do, would it? My once-off declaration of love for Michelle is not going to be any consolation if I don't love her today. And the same is true of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus doesn't want to know if we've loved him in the past. He wants to know whether we love him today. Our love needs to be in the present tense. I guess it was uncomfortable for Peter to be asked the same question over and over like that. But if you think about it, it must have done Peter a lot of good as well. Imagine if Jesus were to stand next to us and keep on asking us, do you love me? Do you love me? Would we want to sin? Would we, would we be tempted to gossip or slander or engage in sexual immorality? We wouldn't, would we? But what Jesus keeps on asking Peter, he keeps on asking us. The question is silently asked to us each morning, do you love me? It's whispered to us as we're talking with our friends at school, do you love me? It's spoken to us as we work in the office, do you love me? It's asked of us when no one else can see us, do you love me? Do you love me? We spoke a moment ago about dealing with our stuff, dealing with our sin. One of the ways that we deal with the stuff in our lives is replacing that stuff with a greater love, a love for Jesus. Secondly, in this commission, there's a command, verse 19. Follow me. And this is the essence of discipleship, which is for all Christians. All Christians are disciples, which means being with Jesus, learning to be like him. Being with him first thing on a morning, reading his word, praying to him, listening to him, and then going out from him, uh, with him rather, into the rest of the day, seeking to do what he would do if he were in my place, seeking to listen for that voice that I heard early in the morning when it was still quiet before the rush and the busyness of the day got in on me. It means keeping the most intimate relationship with Jesus possible. 
Uh, Madame Goyan uh, was a French Christian who lived back in the 1600s. And she once said this, the only work you are required now to do is to give your most intense attention to his still small voice within. And notice too that the words follow me are in the present tense. Keep on following me. Peter had followed Jesus in the past, but not continuously. Now in the future, he and we are to follow Jesus steadfastly. Thirdly, as part of Peter's and our commission, there's a specific charge to him. It's found in those three commands that Jesus gives Peter in response to Peter saying that he does love Jesus. Jesus says to Peter in verse 15, feed my lambs. In verse 16, he says, take care of my sheep. And in verse 17, he says, feed my sheep. Now, obviously, this isn't something to be taken literally. Uh, Peter was a fisherman by trade, not a shepherd. But Jesus is asking Peter basically to be a pastor. That's what the word pastor actually means. It means shepherd. Jesus has got a particular task for Peter. He wants Peter to lead the early church. And in fact, if you read the book of Acts, you, you see that Peter does have that role of leading those early disciples. Now, this is a particular task that Jesus has for Peter. Uh, not everyone is called to be a pastor, but everyone is called to serve Jesus in some way. God has given each one of us gifts and abilities, and he urges us to use those gifts and abilities to extend his kingdom. God longs for us to be involved in what he's doing. He loves our service. And there's a, a great illustration of that, in fact, in the passage that we've just read. You know, when Jesus invites the disciples to breakfast, he says to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught, which is a little bit odd. <laughs> Did Jesus forget? Oh, my goodness, it's James and John. I always forget them. <laughs> Best I get some more fish. No, not at all. One writer puts it like this. The point of it all is this. Jesus can do anything, anything at all including providing those fish in any one of a hundred different ways, but he wants to include and involve his friends. And we are his friends. There'll be breakfast whether you help out or not, but Jesus wants some of the fish that you've caught. He loves us and chooses to involve us in his activities. What fish will you bring to the breakfast? What do you have that you contribute to what Jesus is doing. Don't get caught in the trap of thinking that it's only big things that count for God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 that not even a cup of water given to someone in his name goes unnoticed. All of us have gifts and abilities. We've been placed in families, in communities, in retirement homes where God wants to use us. And God comes to us this morning and says, feed my sheep. Look after those around you who are lost and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We've looked at the good side of Peter's commissioning so far, the call to love, the command to follow, the charge to shepherd. But there's a cost to all of this, isn't there? Because before Jesus says to Peter, follow me, he says this in verses 18 and 19. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. 
Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Church history tells us that Peter was probably martyred during the persecution of the Emperor Nero in AD 64. That expression, stretch out your hands, probably refers to crucifixion. Uh, Peter was crucified, and tradition has it that he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to follow Jesus exactly in his death. For Peter, following Jesus was going to cost him everything. It would take him even to death. I remember as a young person uh, being inspired by stories of Christians who'd suffered and died for their faith. I read books by Richard Wurmbrandt, a Romanian pastor who was tortured for his faith. And the question that I often asked myself was, would I be able to suffer for my faith? Would I be able to die for my faith? But in fact, I think that might be the wrong question. One of the writers that I read this week put it like this. Most of the Christians that I know, and most of those reading this book, if asked, would you die rather than renounce your faith in Christ, would, I suspect, answer yes. We say we're prepared to die for Christ, but in practice, we're not prepared to live for him. We're not prepared to be living sacrifices. We stand ready to lay down our lives, but when called upon by the mundane, inglorious, and utterly unromantic circumstances of everyday life to lay down, moment by moment, the trivia which in their totality go to make up what we call our lives, we cannot, or at any rate, we will not. That's quite a thought. Not am I prepared to die for Christ, but am I prepared to live for him, which often involves dying, dying to myself, dying to my anger, dying to my selfishness, dying to some of my wants and desires, and living for Jesus. Am I prepared to obey God's laws, even when going against his law seems to be so right and feels so good? Am I prepared to go God's way, even though it might cost me financially? Am I prepared to go God's way even when it might cost me the ridicule of my friends? Like Peter, are we prepared to count the cost? And finally, in Peter's commission and in ours, there are some companions along the way. There's a wonderful final twist in this story. Jesus says to Peter, follow me. And Peter looks around and he sees that the disciple that Jesus loved whom we know to be John himself, is already following Jesus. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, what about him? I love Jesus' response. It's a little bit like the phrase that your primary school teacher used to use. Remember during exams? Keep your eyes on your own work. (laughs) Jesus says to Peter, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. I mentioned the Narnia books a moment ago. Uh, There are a couple of places in those books where the characters in the book begin to ask Aslan about his dealing with other people. And each time Aslan, as Jesus, answers, child, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. And that, in effect, is what Jesus says to Peter and to us. 
The temptation is for us to look around at others and do a quick comparison. Well, at least I love Jesus more than that person over there, or I'm doing more for the church than she is. I've given up more of my time than he has. Or sometimes our comparisons lie in the opposite direction. They're comparisons that can paralyze us, make us feel depressed. I could never stand up in front of the church like she just did. I could never speak about Jesus in the way that he does. I could never pray in public in the way that that person does. But Jesus comes to Peter and he says, I'm interested in your love for me. I'm interested in our personal relationship. I'm not interested in those who you think you are doing better than. I'm not interested in those you think you are not doing as well as. I'm interested in your relationship with me. Do, do you love me? There's a wonderful book by Adrian Plass. It's called An Alien at St. Wilfred's. And it's a fictional story, obviously, <laughs> about how an alien, really an angel, visits a local Anglican church and meets with four people, uh, the vicar, David Persimmon, and three others, and how they learn about God together. And in one part of the book, David writes about how they discuss the passage of Scripture that we've looked at this morning. And let me read this as we close. Uh, sorry, the alien's name is Nunk, by the way. <laughs> I've read, said Nunk, how this Peter leapt from his fishing boat and ran through the water when he saw his master on the shore. He did not understand at that time why his master had lived or died or come back to life again, did he? He did not, I agreed. And he had no understanding or knowledge of what the future might hold for him or his companions. Is that not true? I nodded. Was it not also the case that his three denials had not yet been discussed between himself and the one he denied? It was the case, Nunk. There was unfinished business between them. Why then did he run with such abandon towards his master on that day, do you suppose? For several seconds, Nunk's question seemed to hang in the air between us, something fragile and essential, as Richard put it afterwards. Hartley and I answered with exactly the same words at exactly the same time, because he loved him. And what was this man whom he loved? He was the son of God, said Dot. He was the savior of mankind, said Richard. He was the one who made everything, said Hartley. Nunk shone like Christmas as he asked his next question. And this son of God, this savior of mankind, this one who made everything, what was he doing when Peter arrived breathless and dripping wet on the shore? What solemn and majestic task was Peter's risen Lord engaged in? My voice broke just a little as I replied. He was cooking breakfast for his friends. Is that ordinary and practical enough for you, Dave? queried my friend. Do you think it's still like that, Nunk? I said, passionately wanting it to be so. I am only an alien, said Nunk, and you are the ones he came to in the form of a man because he loved you. But it seems to me that he still waits patiently on the shore of the real world, still willing to feed those who love him, to settle and forgive the sins with which they have hurt him and to send them out with quiet minds and stronger hearts to bring others to him.
he still waits patiently on the shore of the real world, still willing to feed those who love him, to settle and forgive the sins with which they've hurt him, and to send them out with quiet minds and strong hearts to bring others to him. Let's pray.